Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're bringing you a show that's become an annual favorite around here. We call it Feeling the Heat, always an appropriate theme this time of year, when temperatures around D.C. can soar well into the 80s, the 90s, even the 100s. In fact, this July was the second hottest in the history of Washington. July 2011 was the first. But just to give you an idea of last month's fiery factor, we set the record with 16 days where the mercury shot past 95 degrees and seven days where it skyrocketed past 100. We tied with the sultry year of 1930 for the most consecutive 100-plus degree days. And the way things stand right now... 2012 is shaping up to be D.C.'s warmest year on record. So, with plenty of sweat-breaking weather, no doubt, still ahead of us, for the next hour, we're going to bring on the heat, Metro Connection style. We'll hear the latest breakthroughs in fire research at the University of Maryland. We'll get tips and tricks on how to make your garden grow beneath that sizzling sun. And we'll talk with federal workers who are feeling the heat as the nation debates how to create a smaller, more efficient federal government. But first, we'll consider the heat of a spot roughly 93 million miles from here the sun. And the hottest part of the sun is its center, which is at least 10 million degrees Kelvin. Just how hot is 10 million degrees Kelvin? Well, imagine boiling water, okay? Now, imagine something 30,000 times hotter than that. So, yeah, we're talking major hotness on that star of ours. And on August 23rd, NASA is launching the second mission in its Living with a Star program, which aims to improve our understanding of the sun and how it affects us humans in space and on Earth. The upcoming launch will focus on space weather, which David Seibeck, a mission scientist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, defines as... The set of effects that happen in space that can affect humans and their technology in space. So it's not like we're thinking tornadoes, storms, rainstorms, snowstorms, just in space. It's not that kind of weather. Well, we use the same kind of terminology. We have storms in space, but they're caused by disturbances coming out from the sun, big blobs of charged plasma that can envelop spacecraft and cause short circuits and other effects in those spacecraft. Now, this charged plasma Cybeck talks about, it actually dominates interplanetary space. In fact, 99% of the universe is made up of this electrified gas. And immediately surrounding our planet... At distances of about one Earth radii above the Earth to five Earth radii above the Earth... We have two giant rings of highly radioactive plasma. They're called the Van Allen Radiation Belts named for the late space scientist James Van Allen. Professor Van Allen and his colleagues at the University of Iowa were among the first to launch rockets into space. The rockets carried Geiger counters, but what they found was the Geiger counters suddenly stopped working at a certain height. David Zybeck says there were only two possible explanations. One, the Geiger counters had broken. Or two, the space was so radioactive that it was overflowing and overwhelming the Geiger counters. Number two, eventually won out. Because seriously, these belts are are extremely radioactive, so much so that they actually emit these crazy sounds. Professor Donald Gurnett, also of the University of Iowa, recorded and named some of these radio waves, and David Seibach and I listened to a few, like Earth Chorus. Earth Proton Whistlers. 
and earth multi-hop whistlers. Those are called whistlers because you hear the falling sound of the whistle. Because the high-frequency ones travel faster and the low-frequency ones follow along. Sounds like I'm in a rainforest, you know? Like there are birds everywhere. And, and that's exactly the right impression to have because the very first people to hear these sounds in the 1920s, they began to call them things like chorus or morning chorus, the sounds you'd hear from a forest in the morning when, when you wake up and hear the birds. Cybex says the upcoming NASA mission not only will better our understanding of the radiation belts, but of space weather and our ability to predict it. And that's a good thing, because not only can space weather screw up instruments and astronauts in space, it can mess up stuff on Earth, too. Like, for instance... Communications on Earth. It affects the Earth's ionosphere and just can shut out radio transmission. So cell phone signals and shortwave radio broadcasts can go haywire. Even airplane communications can go on the fritz. And the reason NASA is launching RBSP this year is because next year's space weather could be the most extreme we've seen in a while. Next year will be the peak of the solar cycle, the 11-year solar cycle. We expect the most intense activity from the sun. These explosions on the sun sending out enormous blobs of plasma, of charged particle, battering the Earth's magnetic field, shaking it up. It's the shaking up and driving it that caused these effects in the radiation belts. As for how that'll affect life here on Earth, well, get this. Down here in Washington, D.C., we may be able to view the aurora borealis, or northern lights. This will be the best time in the solar cycle for it to happen. It has happened in the past, 11 years ago. Though farther north, the effects may be more severe. In the past, there have been surges in electrical power lines that have blown out transformers and caused massive blackouts. So again, Cybex says the RBSP mission could not come at a better time. Now, as for what the $650 million mission actually entails... On August 23, at 4 a.m. at Cape Kennedy, NASA will launch two radiation belt storm probe satellites on a single Atlas V rocket that will carry them up a distance of about a tenth of the way to the moon. In other words, to the heart of the Earth's radiation belts. The satellites were built by the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory. And as these twin disks spin away from the rocket, their instruments will measure those dangerous whistling particles. From the lowest energies to the highest energies. So we can finally understand. The complete environment around the Earth. The satellites are expected to send back measurements for two years. And as they do, David Seibeck hopes to answer questions that have plagued him and his colleagues for years. Like where? Where do the radiation belts, dangerous energetic particles come from? Where do they move to? How do they move around? Where would you find them on any given day? And finally, what removes them? Because the radiation belts, the intensity of particles rises and falls over the course of an hour, over the course of a day, over the course of a month. David Seibeck says answering these questions would be a defining moment for him and for all of us, really, because by understanding more about space weather and radiation belts, we could understand more about the entire universe. And we can thank our lucky stars for that. For more on the Radiation Belt Storm Probes mission and NASA's Living with a Star program, and to hear more of those amazing chirping and whistling sounds made by the radiation belts, visit our website, metroconnection.org.
back to Earth now. Let's continue our feeling the heat theme by talking about fire. Turns out researchers in our very own neck of the woods know a thing or two about fire. They actually spend their days studying how a flickering flame becomes a blazing inferno. Rafaela Benin headed to the University of Maryland to check out the latest research that has these folks truly fired up. Graduate student Paul Anderson is fiddling with his experiment on a large metal table at the University of Maryland's Fire Testing and Evaluation Center. He has a tower of fire set up. The whole thing is pretty small and contained, but honestly beautiful. I think it looks like two uh, laser beams being shot by a, you know, a Jedi master. (laughs) The gas-fueled flame streams up through a metal ring, and above the ring hover two more flames, one inside the other. A triple flame or two laser beams being shot by a Jedi Master. I'm going to rapidly insert a probe into different places in the flame, and then we're going to take a look under an electron microscope. That's it. (laughs) That short click was the probe collecting information about the flame's behavior. And what Anderson finds under the microscope will help the school design more accurate computer models for fires. There are still a lot of mysteries about fire that researchers would like to solve. I feel like uh, fire is the quintessential engineering problem. That's Andre Marshall, the director of the Fire Testing and Evaluation Center. So ever since we first created fire, we had this challenge of being able to put it out. And he says it's a challenge that continues to change over time. Building materials and furnishings are changing in the modern environment. There are a lot more plastics that are used. And plastics tend to burn faster than traditional commodities that were maybe more wood-based. And the construction of the furniture is not always solid. Uh, sometimes it is, uh, it's hollow. With this hollow construction, the fire may spread more quickly through the furniture. And I'm just going to light this with a torch. Back in the lab, grad student Isaac Leventon is testing how some of those modern materials burn. He's studying the plastics used in airplanes. Pretty much everything you'll see in the cabin of an airplane is going to be some sort of plastic because it's cheaper, it's lighter, it can be made pretty much to look however you want it to. But one of the problems with that is unlike bricks or something, it's going to burn. And so we're trying to understand that behavior a lot better than we presently know it. Leventon says that after about a year of burning these bookmark-sized sheets of plastic, they'll have enough data to report on how some of the materials that carry us through the friendly skies burn. But the school is looking at fire even higher than the clouds. All right, so our our project is um, to try to identify the limits of burning in a quiescent environment in microgravity. So quiescent would just be like a still environment, so you don't have any wind blowing. Yep, microgravity. Graduate student Michael Bustamante wants to see how fire burns when there's little to no gravity, like on the International Space Station. So this past May, Bustamante took a flight on a plane that simulates zero gravity. So I was floating in front of my rig, and my legs would end up higher than my head. And we were using a touchscreen, and every time I would push, my legs would fly up. With his legs kicking and floating, Bustamante pressed a button on the touchscreen, and several wicks were lit. He quickly saw that fire really does behave differently when gravity is removed from the equation. Obviously, if fire is hot, everybody knows that. But the hot air also gets uh, a lot lighter. And in the presence of gravity, that air uh, lifts up. And when hot air rises, oxygen can move in to take its place and encourage the fire to keep burning. Without gravity... You get these small uh, elliptical or 
atmospherical flames depending on the shape of your burning area. Versus more of like a teardrop shape that you would get on Earth? Exactly, exactly. Researchers will use this data to design a gas burner that could be used on the space station, or maybe someday by scientists on Mars. The project just goes to show, as we take technological leaps forward, we can't forget about one of our first and most primitive discoveries. I'm Rafaela Benin. To check out some of the fiery research being done at the University of Maryland, head to our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a quick break, but in just a minute, the heat continues with hot lanes. Get it? Hot lanes, hot, hot. Anyway. I think it's frankly unrealistic to believe that there's sufficient public funds to fund these enormous projects in Virginia. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, we're feeling the heat, and later in the show, we'll explore that theme by hanging out with a lifeguard on his shift at a local pool. In this segment, though, we're going to get a bit more metaphorical with the theme, with some stories about the other ways we feel the heat in our lives, whether in the workplace, in the doctor's office, or in the case of this next story, in our daily commutes. By the end of this year, commuters on the Beltway will have a new way to beat the traffic for a price. And that's the topic of our weekly transportation segment from A to B. We're talking today about the I-495 express lanes, also known as hot lanes. The $2 billion project will include two new toll lanes in each direction between the Dulles Toll Road and I-95 in Springfield, Virginia. But there are questions about whether these hot lanes will actually reduce congestion. So joining us now to discuss this issue is transportation reporter Martin DeCaro. Hey there, Martin. Hello, Rebecca. All right. So, Martin, give us the lowdown on this project. My understanding is this is a public-private partnership? Right. The state of Virginia is partnering with Floor Transurban, a company that's built these high-occupancy toll, hot lanes, in other states and around the world. And on paper, this project seems like a win-win-win. The state gets a $2 billion road, Transurban gets the toll revenues, and commuters get a faster ride through a congested corridor. Right. But I'm guessing you're going to tell me now it's more complicated than that. Exactly. Well, for starters, Transurban, the company that put up most of the capital to build it, can't say for sure if it'll make a profit. Here's spokeswoman Jennifer Almond. Transurban is taking 100% of the traffic risk on this project. So if the traffic revenue doesn't happen, if the traffic doesn't come and we can't generate the revenue, we're taking that risk on this project. She just said if the traffic doesn't come. That, that seems like a weird phrase to me because of the gridlock we see every day around this region. I mean, they are expecting drivers to actually use the new lanes, right? Yes, it's a question of how many drivers. The non-toll lanes will still be there. So when the hot lanes open by the end of the year, Transurban will have to figure out 
how high to charge the tolls. They don't want to make them too high, right? Because then that might make fewer people try the new road. If tolls are too low, Transurban doesn't make enough profit. In fact, the reason the state had to chip in about 25% of this project's cost was toll revenue projections weren't strong enough for Transurban to pay for the whole thing. Aha, I got it. So um, I'm guessing there are a lot of carpoolers listening right now who use the Beltway every day. Martin, where do they fit into this whole equation? If you have at least three people in your vehicle, you get to ride free, but that could also cause problems for Transurban's bottom line. Basically, if really large numbers of carpoolers use the hot lanes, state taxpayers will wind up subsidizing those trips. Really? Why? Well, I'll spare you most of the dry language in the contract, but here are the basics. If at least 24% of vehicles in the hot lanes on busy days are carpoolers, the state will have to pay Transurban up to 70% on those lost tolls. But the project supporters are downplaying this possibility. Here's VDOT's Chief Deputy Commissioner Charlie Kilpatrick. Is there a backstop? The answer to that is yes. Do we think we'll get there? The answer to that is no. And if we do, we still consider that a success. Now, if Transurban makes a certain profit, that subsidy won't apply. And the reason all this talk of the bottom line is important is that other private road ventures like the Dulles Greenway are not working out as planned, and the contracts with the public entities had to be restructured. For commuters, though, the bottom line is that this is a win, right? In some cases, yes. If you know you have to be at the doctor in 30 minutes and don't want to risk sitting in traffic, the toll lanes will be there. You know, I spoke with Emil Frankel, a visiting scholar at the Bipartisan Policy Center in D.C. He's also a former assistant secretary. Secretary at the USDOT. He thinks the hot lanes are a good idea because without the public-private partnership, the road doesn't get built. It's a negotiated transaction between the private and the public sector in which the private sector is putting a lot of money into this only with the assurance that they're going to get a return on their investment. So the public has had to give up something in order to get this built and get the private investment made. So, Martin, this wouldn't be Washington if there weren't some people, how shall we say, questioning the wisdom of this project. What are opponents saying about the hot lanes? Well, they're unhappy with the deal the state got. Transurban hopes to pay off its debt in 30 years but gets the toll revenues for 75 years, not the state. And smart growth advocates are concerned that Virginia is just paying lip service to transit options on the way to just expanding highways. Here's Stuart Schwartz, the executive director of the Coalition for Smarter Growth. I think we should be looking at all alternatives up front and look more objectively at transit and transit-oriented development alternatives. We should look at public ownership of the tolling so that we have access to those revenues in the future. Schwartz says if the hot lanes are successful and encourage more people to get in their cars there, that'll cause more traffic congestion on local roads when those vehicles eventually exit the new highway. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye on this project as it continues to unfold. Martin, thanks for giving commuters out there a lot to think about when they head home today. You're welcome. And we want to know, how much would you be willing to pay to zip around the Beltway and avoid all that traffic? You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or tweet us. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. It's too darn hot. It's too darn hot. I'd like to sup with my baby tonight. Refill the cup with my baby tonight. I'd like to sup with my baby tonight. Refill the cup with my baby tonight. But I ain't up to my baby tonight cause it's too darn hot. When it comes to feeling the heat, and I'm not talking about the sweaty, schwitzy kind, few institutions are feeling more heat these days than the federal bureaucracy. 
But with all the talk of downsizing the government, cutting spending and eliminating waste, you don't often hear the voice of the average federal employee in the debate. Well, Jonathan Wilson brings us this story on how the fight over the size and scope of government is affecting morale for federal workers right here in our region. If you're looking for signs that the talk about shrinking government is getting federal employees down, you won't find it here. This is the Next Generation of Government Training Summit, an event aimed at bringing together Generation X and Y government professionals. My name is Dave Uegio. I work at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uegio is also the president of Young Government Leaders, one of the groups hosting the conference. He says the possibility of a smaller federal government isn't really changing how young federal workers feel about their jobs. Partly because the new generation of federal workers doesn't necessarily see federal employment as a lifetime commitment. I think for our members, you know, it it may slow their lateral movement, but they're really not worried about it because they're not looking at this as a 20-year career. But for others, the current political atmosphere can be disconcerting. Ruth Schulte is a research scientist for a federal agency. She asked us not to reveal which one because she wasn't authorized to speak on behalf of her department. She says she hears too many people call for smaller government without considering which services to eliminate. It's complicated and people want their silver bullet. Oh, smaller government, that's going to be the solution. I'm not going to have to pay as much. Or they just want the simple version. And it's not simple. It's it's multifaceted. John Palguda is vice president of policy at the Partnership for Public Service, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization that promotes effective government. He says federal employees can get frustrated when budgets are reduced, but expectations for services are not. He points to a survey his organization conducted last year. Employees at the National Park Service expressed relatively low levels of job satisfaction after funding reductions. And uh, we actually took a look at that because how could you not love working in the National Park? Uh, And the fact of the matter is they love their jobs. And what bothers them, what decreases their satisfaction, is that they cannot maintain those national parks at the level that they want for the public. Some federal employees have long been beating the drum for cost-cutting from within the bureaucracy. Joel Reidenauer is a travel policy analyst for the Department of Defense. He says he's gotten used to hearing his bosses remain silent in response to some of his politically unpopular suggestions. But he says he's starting to see some of his ideas break through. There was a recent uh, memo from OMB uh, dictating a cutting waste, and there were some of my ideas that I put forward that were listed in there, and I got all excited. Steve Ressler is the founder of GovLoop, a social networking site for government employees. He worries about what the tenor of the discussion means for employee recruitment and retention. He wants to make sure the best and the brightest in the federal workforce stay on the job. In pure numbers, I think sometimes you're still fine, right? So um, in terms of, you know, you'll, you'll still get uh, a number of folks applying for jobs and, and items like that. But are you really getting the best, the brightest, the most energetic, the most innovative? Um, are those the folks that are leaving? He says the answer to that question may depend on whether the public perception of the federal workforce takes a more positive turn. I'm Jonathan Wilson. This story was informed by sources in our Public Insight Network, or PIN. It's a way for people to share their stories with us and for us to reach out for input on topics we're covering. To learn more about the network, head over to metroconnection.org slash PIN.
kids in D.C. often feel the heat quite early, at least when it comes to the pressure to have sex. A national survey by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has found that compared with kids in other parts of the country, young folks in Washington have sex earlier, have more partners, and have higher rates of sexually transmitted diseases. And the district's public schools are now facing that reality by trying new ways to talk with kids about sex. As we wrap up our series on kids with HIV, special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza brings us the story. And please note the names of the students in this story have been changed to protect their privacy. Pauline Lee is a nurse at School Without Wall Senior High School in Northwest D.C. She rummages around in one of several fishbowls full of condoms, including female condoms, she keeps around the school. Lee shows off one in gold foil. This is the magnum. This is the largest condom that we have. It's also the most popular. She holds up the last one. Girls often say... Why do the boys not pick the right size condom? Guys pick this one because it deals with their macho-ism. Lee is blunt when she talks about sexual health, everything from abstinence to practicing safe sex. That's because her students have so many misconceptions about sexually transmitted diseases, including HIV. She says the most common one is, everyone is at risk, but not me. It would never happen to me because I keep myself clean and he looks like he is very clean and wears clean clothes. So therefore, I'm okay. Lee says parents don't usually talk to their children about safe sex and when they do, they tend to keep it short. The discussion is keep your pants zipped, your dress down. End of conversation. Lee says arming young people with information helps them make better choices. And Thomas, a senior here, agrees. He says his classmates don't talk to their parents about sex. The health class is the number one information source. I can't speak for other schools, but at least here I know that the classes are very explicit and are very direct. You can't prepare the road for the child, but you can prepare the child for the road. Giving young people information that they can use to make decisions is really empowering. That's Deanna Bruce, head of health programs for D.C. public schools. In the past two years, DCPS has significantly revamped its sex education program. Now, in collaboration with the D.C. Department of Health, every traditional public high school has free condoms available and several teachers certified to answer questions about sexual health. Last year, the D.C. Department of Health distributed approximately a million condoms to young people. Adam Tenner heads the nonprofit Metro Teen Aids, which reaches approximately 30,000 students every year and trains teachers to talk comfortably about sex. He says in April, D.C. became the first school district in the country to include age-appropriate questions on health, including HIV, on standardized tests. At the end of the day, what gets tested gets done. Parents can excuse their children from having to answer some of the questions, but Tenna says it's still a good gauge of how much students know. The results are expected later this year. He says health education is not just about information, but also about helping young people manage their relationships more effectively. How to say, I'm not going to have sex with you. 33% of kids say that they're already having sex by 7th grade. We can shut our ears and shut our eyes, but it's not helping the problem. Deanna Bruce says teachers are trained to assume there are children with HIV in class and to avoid stigmatizing language. So where, you know, oh, well, you don't want to get HIV. You know, with a a simple statement like that, that could seem benign, at least by the teacher. But for the student who's living with HIV, that, that separates them. 
If children don't feel they're part of the group, they tune out and no longer think the information being taught applies to them. Bruce says that's why teachers try to be inclusive. So, for instance, when they talk about celebrities, they mention gay and straight examples. Keante was 16 when he tested positive for HIV. He was dating an older man and started out using condoms. Under pressure, he stopped. Because I was starting to trust him. I should never trust him. He says what was worse was sitting through health class in 11th grade, almost a year after his diagnosis, and learning about how HIV is transmitted. But I'm like, okay, I'm already with this situation, so it's kind of too late in the game for y'all to be explaining this to me, making me feel bad. Keante wishes someone had talked to him at 13 before he started having sex, so he wouldn't be worrying about his future. You know, I'm not going to make it to see at least 20, 25. Adam Tenner says health education is not just about actions today. It's also about a lifetime of healthy choices. And he says schools have to be involved in HIV education. While they may not die on the watch of schools, we should still feel the stain of that blood on our hands if we're letting young people mature to adulthood without understanding how their bodies work, how they can protect themselves, how they can make decisions around whether they want to have sex, when they want to have sex, and with whom they want to have sex. Dr. William Barnes oversees the HIV program at Children's National Medical Center, which cares for the majority of HIV-positive children and teens in the metro area. He says he's seeing an increase in numbers. In the last five years, we averaged somewhere around 35 to 44 new cases. This year, we already have over 50 new cases. Michael Coffin with the D.C. Department of Health says last year the district tested approximately 4,000 students in schools for sexually transmitted diseases, including HIV. And this year, he says, there are plans to scale up that effort with a big push to have more charter schools participate. To get people to feel like this is something that they can do on a routine basis. Walter Smith heads D.C. Appleseed, an advocacy organization that creates the district's HIV prevention efforts. He says schools were slow to realize how big a problem HIV is. From the beginning, pretty uniformly, our lowest grades have been for the schools. But he says that's slowly changing. In the most recent report card, D.C.'s traditional public schools received a B plus, but charter schools received a C. Smith says many charters don't have health teachers or programs in place as yet. Coffin says approximately 30% of the $10 million the district spends on HIV prevention efforts is directed toward young people. When we talk about the end of HIV, where does that start? That starts with our youngest generation. We can inoculate their future from HIV if we work with them now. Because for all the improvement in HIV treatment, prevention is still the best treatment of all. I'm Kavita Kadosa. After the break keeping that green thumb when the mercury soars to triple digits. Uh, You're not going to be able to beat Mother Nature, so you have to figure out ways to work with her. It's coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. 
Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we are feeling the heat. But, of course, we humans aren't the only ones who feel the heat when the thermometer rises. That's why our environment reporter and part-time gardener, Sabri Benashore, headed to the U.S. Botanic Gardens to find out how we can beat the heat for our plants. So if a car in the sun can reach temperatures of 200 degrees Fahrenheit, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, how do greenhouses do it? I mean, they're basically big glass cars. Jim Kaufman helps run the nation's greenhouse at the U.S. Botanic Garden. I met him in the Orchid House. The really neat part about this house is that if you look above us and around us is that we're surrounded by a big ficus. And this is natural cooling at its best. The canopy covers up the entire house. Yeah, there are are roots dangling around us right now. We're we're draping through the aerial roots. But sometimes even the botanic garden needs extra help. So they have vents in the ceiling and special misters and underground vents to push cooler air up. But most people don't have those things. So what are we supposed to do? You might be saying, duh, just water your plants. But Kaufman says that's not necessarily a good idea. Sometimes some plants get so hot that they just stop taking up the water. and They just they, kind of shut down. They just kind of shut down. You know, just like anybody else, <laughs> it gets so hot, they're not working anymore. The problem is hot soil, and you can have hot soil that's wet and ends up just drowning your plant. So Kaufman says, don't boil your plants. Probably the most important thing that I'd like to stress is feel the soil. The soil is so important. Take the mulch aside, and you reach in right around the roots, where the roots are, and and you just take a fistful. If you can take that soil and squeeze it in your hand and it retains that shape of your fist, you're at a good soil moisture and you probably have a good soil texture in there. If you start to see uh, water drain out of there when you squeeze it in your fist, you got too much water going on there. And if it just crumbles apart, you're probably too dry. He says one great idea to keep the soil cool is mulch, two or three inches of it. But again, he says there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. A typical thing that I see a lot of around here is what I call the mulch volcanoes, where some folks will take shredded hardwood mulch and build it a foot or more up around the base of the tree. You never want to do that. That's because what rots mulch could rot the bark on your tree. But fundamentally, when it comes to beating the heat, maybe the best strategy is to not try so hard. That means picking your plants wisely. Outside the greenhouse, Kaufman uses a lot of native plants. You'll see plants like the longleaf pine with the long green needles are probably about a foot long. As far as perennials, I got to say some of the echinacea, just anything you can throw at, at echinacea, it can really take. They'll see them in uh, purples, whites, uh, green. There's a beautiful one called Green Envy. Echinacea and a variety of ornamental grasses really make a good combination. Thyme, he says, is a really tough plant and a good bet. So are a lot of herbs like rosemary. For annuals, there are some really resilient ones, too. Those tough annuals, some of my favorite are lantanas and coleus. They take all sorts of conditions, and they go from oranges, yellows, multicolors, and then the coleuses. There's a variety of textures of leaves from uh, looks like ducks' webbed feet to some really dark, almost black leaves. You're not going to beat Mother Nature, says Coffin, so you got to figure out ways to work with her. So the best way to beat the heat is to use plants that love it. I'm Sabri Benashore. You can find a list of some of the resilient plants Kaufman recommends on our website. That's metroconnection.org.
a hot, hot day, there's nothing quite as refreshing as going for a swim. And when people head to the pool to cool off, Devin Rudnick's day starts to heat up. The 20-year-old is the head lifeguard and manager of Tally Ho Swim Club in Potomac, Maryland. On a recent steamy afternoon, Emily Friedman joined Rudnick to find out what really goes on in the life of a lifeguard. For 15 minutes out of every hour, Devin Rudnick is the least popular guy at Tally Ho Swim Club. Those few minutes are adult swim, a time for the moms and the dads to swim laps and aquasize in peace. It never goes over well with kids. The kids usually ask why. They always pretend to fall in. That is very, very common occurrence, is people just falling in accidentally during adult swim. Rudnick doesn't look like a guy who's known for laying down the law. His toenails are polished to look like Skittles, and he's wearing old lady sunglasses. But in spite of his lighthearted fashion choices, he wants you to know being a lifeguard is serious business. Every day is kind of like you don't know what's going to happen just because kids are really unpredictable, especially at the pool you definitely see a lot of kids with sugar and hormones racing, and little kids are pretty weird. And Rudnick gets it. Not too long ago, he was one of those kids. I was a pool rat growing up. Days at the pool were like 40-hour days where I would just be able to play forever. And pool rats are the kids that are there from 10 o'clock in the morning to 8.30 at night every single day pretending to be a little lifeguard. We have a couple of them here. Rudnick gestures to a ping-pong table where we meet Sean Claxton, a lanky 13-year-old in braces. Would you consider yourself a pool rat? Yeah, I would. I like being called because I am here every day. We walk into the lifeguard office where there's half a chocolate birthday cake with purple icing. Lifeguards eat anything and everything. People just bring over like half a cake or bring over four boxes of pizza and they're like, we can't finish this. It's basically like throwing it to the dogs when you give it to the lifeguards. It's pretty much the best job ever, says one of Rudnick's guards, Tyler Wooster. Sit out in the sun, swim in the pool and... Look at girls pass by. They can't see you looking at them with the shades on, but the eyes are still following them. Devin, what do you think about that? Do you concur? Uh, I really wish I didn't hear that, to be honest. Devin Rudnick blows the whistle to signal it's the end of Adult Swim. From his chair six feet above the shallow end, he looks out across the pool. You can kind of tell who's tired, how well they can swim... It's like a a lifeguard sixth sense. Earlier this summer, Rudnick says, there was a big birthday party and one of the kids went down the slide into the deep end. I'm not entirely sure if he was able to swim at all. His arms were splashing and he was tilting his head back, gasping for air. Uh, And he kept going, bobbing up and down. I just got out of the chair, walked over, jumped in and kept his head out of water and just like scissor kicked to the side. It gets your heart pounding pretty good. Fifteen minutes later, it's time for the lifeguards to rotate chairs. Devin has a short break, so he climbs up the diving board and jumps high into the mid-afternoon sun. Are you refreshed? Indeed. I like to go to the bottom of the well. It's like an ice pit down there. It's awesome. Jumping in the pool, he says, is one of lifeguarding's greatest perks. It's a job where I can be myself. I'm that lifeguard guy. And with that... He gets in line for the diving board behind Sean, the pool rat, and a six-year-old in a blue rash guard wearing neon green goggles. There's time for one more dive before getting back to work. I'm Emily Friedman.
for a map of all the public pools in the District, Maryland, and Virginia, visit us at metroconnection.org. In June, at the technical start of this sweltering summer, we rolled out a new series we're calling DC Dives. As the name suggests, we've been visiting the city's best dive bars. You know, the sort of watering holes you'd probably miss unless you're in the know. In our debut, we visited the Raven Grill in Mount Pleasant. And this time around, Jared Walker takes us to the Quarry House Tavern in Silver Spring. To the uninitiated, the Quarry House Tavern may be difficult to find. But former general manager Gordon Banks says that's not by design. So we don't have a sign. Our big sign actually blew away in a storm, and then the other sign got stolen. You'd think that might be a problem for a bar whose entrance is located down a poorly lit stairwell in the basement of an Indian restaurant. But owner Jackie Greenbaum says the clientele of the Quarry House is a resilient and, in her words, self-selecting crowd. There are people that walk down the steps that fall in love and they know this is their new bar. And there's people that walk down the steps or who won't go down the steps who just hightail it out. And once you enter the Quarry House, two things immediately stand out. Number one, the bar is dark. There is a window, but there's something covering it up. And then... (laughs) And number two... Ceiling's really low. Watch your head. Um, That's important. There's like three dropped ceilings. The ceiling is really low. So just how low is it? Well, on this Saturday night, Silver Spring residents Brent Ewig and Samantha Biondo are dancing to live music from rockabilly band The Ultra Kings. With each twirl and hop, their heads come within a foot of the plaster. But they don't seem to mind. Samantha says it's all part of the draw for them. This is our local dive bar, so... To the extent we get out with two little kids, we do try to come here as much as possible. They usually have really good music on Saturday nights, and it's just the kind of place where you can come, and it's very casual, and it's you know laid back to the point that they don't even answer the phone when you call. As the bar's former booking agent, musician J.P. McDermott helped create the live music scene with its emphasis on rockabilly music. It's part of what I think makes the Quarry House so unique. Because with that sort of fun music in there on a Saturday night, you get a range of ages. You get people who were listening to Elvis Presley when he first hit the radio, and the younger kids are there at the Quarry House anyway because it's a cool place to be. McDermott thinks that this Silver Spring establishment is the perfect dive. I think a a dive bar's got to have sort of a, a dark atmosphere. Underground bars work great as dive bars. You know, sort of away from the prying eyes of the of the street. It's got to have some good music. It's got to have an interesting staff and an interesting crowd. And uh, I think the Quarry House hits that on all those bells. And the staff at the Quarry House have plenty of interesting stories. We had a gentleman walk in bare-ass naked and walk up to the bar and say, may I have a vodka cranberry? Um, he was very polite. Uh, I had some new bartenders in there. Jaws dropped. Didn't know what to do. And one of the other bartenders who was kind of training them just walks up to him, puts his arm around him and goes, come on, naked guy. <laughs> and walks him back up the stairs where, uh, where the police were waiting for him. And I was like, here we go. This is why my parents want me to take computer classes. 
Tonight, all of the customers are fully clothed and well-behaved. Couples are dancing to live music, friends are huddled together at their tables, and conversations are piercing through the wailing sound of a Telecaster guitar. In other words, it's just another Saturday night at the Quarry House Tavern. I'm Jared Walker. A quick note, Saturday night is Rockabilly Night at the Quarry House Tavern, and this week, J.P. McDermott will be making an appearance. If you have a favorite dive bar you'd like to nominate for this series, we are all ears. Send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Northwest D.C.'s Penn Quarter and Lake Arbor, Maryland. My name is Nanette Paris. I live and work in Penn Quarter. I've been here approximately 11 years or so. It's bordered on the south by Pennsylvania Avenue. To the east, approximately 5th Street. To the west, approximately 11th Street. Many people think that it was a recently developed neighborhood, but it actually started in the early 70s when the Pennsylvania Development Corporation was formed. Government officials just decided that it was a shame to have this decaying, deteriorating, beautiful boulevard. So they decided to form this corporation and develop this plan to revitalize this area. While this area has been newly developed, it does have a lot of history. When this project that I live in was being developed, someone went over to check and make sure that nobody was living in these vacant buildings. What he noticed were some papers and some objects, and he looked a little closer, and what did he find but this treasure trove of artifacts, 20 boxes of newspapers, books, clothing, fabric. And come to find out, it was Clara Barton, the founder of the American Red Cross. She had an office there, the Office of Missing Soldiers, and what she tried to do is reconnect soldiers in the Civil War with their families. I like the vibrancy. I like having a mix of, with the architecture, the new, the old, the historical, and then having a mix of people, having the residents, office workers, tourists, all together. My name is Kevin Alexander. I live in Lake Arbor, which is a community within Mitchellville. Lake Arbor is about 15 miles east of Washington, D.C. Lake Arbor approximately has 10,000 residents. I would say the demographics of Lake Arbor is predominantly upwardly mobile. We do have Asians. We do have white people. We do have Hispanics. So we have a cross range of folks, but the predominant ethnic group here is African-American. There are three pretty sizable lakes in Lake Arbor, and around each lake is a walking path. It's not uncommon to see children or adults walking or riding their bikes around the paths in Lake Arbor. Last week was the third annual Lake Arbor Jazz Festival, which attracted about 6,000 people, and is a friendly, family-oriented festival that everyone in the community really, really enjoyed. 
We have our own shopping center within the community. We have our own middle school, our own elementary school, and then we also have in the middle of the community a swimming pool, tennis courts, pavilion, and a community clubhouse for the residents to use. So it's really a nice place to live. We heard from Nanette Paris in Penn Quarter and Kevin Alexander in Lake Arbor. If you think your neighborhood should be part of door-to-door, send an email to metro at wamu.org. Or visit us on Facebook, that's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Friedman, Sabri Benashore, Martin DeCaro, Jonathan Wilson, Kavitha Cardoza, Jared Walker, and Rafaela Benin. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our interns are Jessica Officer and Rafaela Benin. John McCone, Lauren Landau, Rafaela Benin, and Jessica Officer produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our Door to Door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on MetroConnection.org, you can find our Twitter link, our Facebook link. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To listen to our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll be looking back with some of our favorite stories from recent months. We'll visit a long-gone Capitol Hill with 93-year-old author Mary Z. Gray. We'll hear the tale of a D.C. man who breached the boundaries of Earth and Sky as one of the world's first pilots. And we'll find out what it's like to look back at your childhood and realize your family was keeping a major secret from you. I learned so much about me as a person and who I am today. And that secret had a lot to do with it. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.